Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hello, the Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show, more than 600 episodes and counting, are all available for free. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support this show, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. I'm going to sneeze. Hang on a second. <coughs> Thank you. Hey there. How is it going out there? I'm Brad Listy. This is the Other People Program. It's good to be with you wherever you happen to be. Steph Cha is back on the program for a second time. She has a new novel out called uh, Your House Will Pay. It is available from Echo, and it is generating rave reviews across the board. Starred reviews. Uh, like all the buzz is happening for this book. It is called, again, Your House Will Pay. I had an excellent uh, time with Steph talking with her about this book, what led to the writing of this book, what this book uh, is inspired by, the real life events, uh, events and people that this book is inspired by, at least in part, and so on and so forth. So uh, I don't think there's anything else to get to. I'm trying to think. I think that's it. Let's just get to Steph Cha and the conversation that I had with her just a few days ago. Okay. Can we do that? Here she is, folks. This is Steph Cha, and her new novel is called Your House Will Pay. You know, the first three books were all in one series, and they were all PI novels and kind of had the traditional mystery structure. Like, you know, they had the... There, there's somebody killed towards the beginning or somebody is missing, and, and towards the end, you kind of find the solution. And... It, the whole thing is told from one person's point of view, um, and it's in the first person. And so, it it the structure of it was, um, you know, pretty similar for the first three books. 
And um, this one is a departure in a lot of ways. I mean, it's still a crime novel, but it's in a different part of the genre where um, it's not a mystery. Like I describe it as a crime novel, but not a mystery because it's not like a who who done it sort of thing. Um, it deals with crime, and there's tons of crime in it. And I think crime is one of the one of the engines of the novel. Um, but I don't know. I'm, I'm calling it a social crime novel. I think that's fair. Yeah. And so when you talk about the first three books, the Juniper Song books, um, which we discussed the first time you were on. Yeah. I think uh, uh, I came on for my second book or okay. maybe it was my third. I'm, I don't remember. It was 2014 or 2015. Okay. So you talk about the structure for those having like the same basic, um, I don't know, plot points or architecture. Is that fair? Yeah. Is there, I guess the question I would have is like for, for someone writing crime fiction in a more like traditional genre vein, is there like a set formula out there that you located in other uh, books in that genre that you were using as kind of a model? Yeah. And they vary in different ways. But when I first start, started writing my first novel, one of the things I thought was that I could, I, I, a detective novel felt approachable to me because it, there's a, skeleton that comes with genre there are genre expectations there are certain there are certain points that you're supposed to meet and certain promises that you have to deliver on and so there are tent poles to this thing that made it so that i could kind of wobble around but like towards various goals so it was actually easier to plot those books than it was the new one because i knew that i had to hit certain points and there's like a, it feels like there's like a vessel. You've got the, you've got the thing that ho to hold, you can fill in, but you've got like the, the pot or something. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I actually, you know, and I, I, I've taught novel writing classes and I actually think that a very useful thing for creativity, especially when you're starting out is to have constraints. I actually think that constraints really are conducive to creativity. You have something and instead of being paralyzed by having to consider every possible thing, you have something that you can lay onto and um, you can get really inventive with that. And I find that to be true with the entire crime fiction genre. You know, even the ones that that hew to the fair, a fairly traditional structure, they can do that in so many different ways. And when there are genre conventions, um, they're also there to be flouted and played with. And I think like that's really fun for especially uh, modern authors who are who are looking to uh, critique the genre or toy with the genre or um, you know say different things about it or about crime. Um, even having those conventions there is a really fun, useful starting point. What about the what about crime fiction uh, drew you? Was this something you were reading? I, I might be asking a question I asked you last time, but I think for listeners, it's useful to know um, like how you came to work in this vein. Yeah, um, and I don't remember whether we talked about this last time because it was like five years ago. And <laughs> I can't remember anything. Not gonna <laughs> not gonna make anyone dive into the archives. Um, although the archives are very good. Yeah, there, it's, a, it's just a, it's a bounty. <laughs> it's a bounty. But um, I came through. I came in kind of through Raymond Chandler, actually, um, because I, I took a class when I was a freshman in college on American detective fiction, and we read, we read The Big Sleep, and we read other greats of crime fiction. We read Dashiell Hammett. We read Walter Mosley. Um, 
But where, where did you go to school again? Stanford. Okay. But reading Chandler and having grown up in LA and not read a lot, if any, books that were set in LA, it was kind of revelatory for me and really fun. Um, and I also thought, you know, this this LA is recognizable in various ways and also completely different from the world I grew up in. And so I thought as I read that book and for a long time afterwards that I would really love to read a book that was like a Raymond Chandler novel, but that reflected the LA that I knew, you know, growing up in a Korean American community dominated by immigrants and children of immigrants. And I had that in mind and didn't realize, I guess, when I was a college student that that drive often means you're going to end up writing that novel if it's like this specific niche thing. Um, and so when I was in law school and decided, you know what, I'm going to like give this a shot of writing a novel, I'd always kind of vaguely dreamed about it. That's what I went back to. I thought, you know, I'd like to write a book that is about growing up Korean American in Los Angeles in contemporary LA. Um, but that is also in conversation with Raymond Chandler and with a genre. And so that's how I came into it. And then, and then I realized all the fun things you can do with crime fiction. You know, I think crime fiction is a very valuable way to expose layers of society. You know, I think the private investigator figure is particularly useful for that because she can go anywhere. You know, that's one of the, that's part of the appeal of the private investigator is like, she can she can be in Van Nuys in the morning, Venice at night, um, and talk to talk to a dozen different people in between. And you get you get you get a lot of um, you get to see a cross section of Los Angeles in any given book. And you can also discuss social issues and um, insert cultural commentary in a way that isn't too heavy. Um, or I mean, that is heavy, but that is at least tied to a plot that has some um, some gas to it. So people will read along. It's like a spoonful of sugar, like helps yeah. the medicine go down. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I was just this morning, I was dry. I get up early and I was driving uh, to go walk the dog up in the hills. And I, I have this, I have this experience fairly frequently. I've lived here almost 20 years and I was just, I always like feel like an alien here. I'm like, I, it's so unknowable. I'm like, where the hell am I? I know I've lived here for a long time, but I, I drive around and I'm like, this doesn't feel like a place that I know. I don't know if I'm ever going to get there with Los Angeles. Um, and maybe that's how I would feel anywhere. I don't know. I have nothing to compare it to in my adult life, really. But it's so big and multifaceted and everybody's kind of in their cars. And do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I totally know what you're saying. And I, I, I will say I grew up here and I haven't lived for really significant portions of time anywhere else. I mean, I, other than like going away for school, which is a totally different experience. This is the only place I've lived... Um, as an adult, pretty much also. So, um, yeah, I, I, I totally get what you're saying. I think the multifaceted nature of LA is why it's continually fascinating to me. And the unknown, I, I don't think it's unknowable. I think it is, it is easy to stay in your enclave and I'm guilty of that too. Um, and, and, and I think, um, there are so many pockets of the city that I really don't know. And I drive through them and I'm like, well, where's this? Like, you know, I, I think about like driving all, all the way across Wilshire Boulevard, for example, you go through 
every kind of community. You mean from, from like downtown to the beach? Yeah, yeah. If you think about that stretch, you go, you know, and I know that I know the K-Town stretch very well. Um, but yeah, you get you you go through K-Town, you go through Westwood and a million little neighborhoods in between. And some of and it changes so quickly as you're driving. And I and I find that appealing. I find it interesting. And like there's so many stories here and I feel like I will never finish getting to know los angeles and that's part of why i like it me too me and too. i also like the areas that i do know and i feel very comfortable in those so it's it's kind of like you have your own little home pocket and you get you can get very comfortable there um but there's but like the whole world is like right outside and i find that really cool yeah that was kind of like the i think i gave you like the first half of my experience this morning it was like, wow, I'm never going to know this place. And then like the, the book end to it was that, and I like that. Yeah. It's like endlessly fascinating and, uh, mysterious or something. And I, uh, I don't know, maybe it'll be different for my kids. Like growing up here, maybe they'll feel like a, a stronger sense of rootedness. I came here as an adult, but, um, it's a big place. Yeah. And I grew up in the suburbs. So I grew up in the Valley and Sino, um, and now I live right where you live, like central Los Angeles. And so even that, I think about like raising kids in the middle of the city versus in the suburbs. And I think that's a different experience. Like, I feel like I got to know a lot of LA as an adult because, you know, when I was a kid, I would hang out like with my friends from school and we just like go to each other's houses. I don't know. What do you even do? Like before you can like drive and go out drinking. Right. <laughs> Go get tattoos on Melrose. <laughs> um, we did go shopping on Melrose sometimes. I feel like people who drive Lyft and Uber, I often have this conversation with them when I'm getting a ride around town. I'm like, you guys are the only ones or some of the few people who really know the city. If you drive long enough, like all the little neighborhoods, eventually you're going to like take it all in. Um, and, I think, and I'm sure they all have stories. I mean, yeah, but it's also, you know, you talk about getting sort of boxed in, you live in a big metropolis and I'm, I, I imagine it's somewhat the same elsewhere. Um, especially when traffic is such a factor, like that's part of what boxes you in. It's like, do I really want a deal? Like, I'd love to go <laughs> yeah. see, I'd love to go see this cool neighborhood, but it's going to take like, you know, 45 minutes to get five miles. So you just wind up staying home more often, I think. Yeah, no, I think about that sometimes. I mean, I like, I like to go out and try a new restaurants and foods and sometimes i think about oh like there's this place that jonathan gold recommended and it and it's known for like a specific kind of taco or a specific regional chinese food and it's like oh i'd really like to go to that but it's like not even a sit-down restaurant and it is 45 minutes away yeah well no and i God, i was just watching something with uh jonathan gold like a documentary about LA, it was like on YouTube or something, but he was talking about how the traffic thing is actually good for food. And I forget what the logic was. The fact that people have to get in their cars and go to these different distinct neighborhoods. I think it probably maintains the integrity of the neighborhoods too, which is good for food. Okay. Yeah. So, like because that. otherwise I, I haven't seen this specific documentary. I mean, I knew Jonathan and I have seen city of gold and, um, and I know kind of his ethos. I, I feel like the, uh, I, I feel like the idea behind that is probably, you know, if, if everybody could be everywhere very quickly, things would just be more homogeneous. Right. 
because it'd just be like the cool, trendy thing that people pay money for. Right. And that, like, I'm now remembering you were writing all these food reviews and restaurant reviews on Yelp, right? I still do that. You still do that. <laughs> so you know, but that's, a, but that's another way to get to know this place. Yeah. Right. Do you ever think of it in those terms? You know, I don't because my Yelp habits are very like not Jonathan Goldie. Like I'm very lazy. And so I end up going to places that are near my house. Like <laughs> recently I've been working in Burbank and my like 90% of my recent Yelp reviews are like takeout lunch places in Burbank. I mean, that's not Jonathan Gold. <laughs> what are you doing in Burbank? I'm writing on a TV show. Oh yeah. So crime related or? Yeah. It's a, it's a crime series, um, for HBO max, which is Warner brothers new streaming service. It's my first TV job. Um, it's also the first job that I've been working since like, like job job since 2015. But came at a good time. I was done with the novel. Right. So, and uh, how did you get it? I think people listening, like, how do you get a job like that? Oh, if people are asking um, that and expecting a useful answer, that's going to piss them off. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my showrunner, my boss, wanted to hire a crime novelist for the room. And um, she emailed me out of the blue one day. Um, somebody referred me. And I went in, do interviewed for you know, do you know who it. referred you? Yeah, Leonard Chang. Um, he's a screenwriter and novelist. Um, he's also Korean-American. Um, and he and I had a... I, I bought him a drink, like, years ago. I want to say in, like, 2013. Because um, I knew he was a Korean-American crime novelist who lived in L.A. And he was writing on Justified at the time. And I just, like... I was curious about his job, his career... And so I met up with him and he remembered that I had expressed interest in writing TV. Um, and so, he, so when, um, my boss asked him for references, he referred me. Wow. So that drink paid off. Yeah, totally. I, I, I had that thought. I was like, wow, I probably spent like $14 like to buy him like a glass of wine, you know? Um, but the other funny thing about that is, um, my boss had initially wanted to hire Walter Mosley who actually works with Leonard. Um, they work on Snowfall. Um, but Walter was busy because of the Snowfall. And um, she really courted him, and he couldn't do it. And, uh, and so that's, that's why I have the job, because Walter Mosley turned it down. Um, and Walter, you know, we're friends now. He, he blurred my book, which was really, really nice, because, I, like I said, I read him as a freshman in college. You know, Devil in a Blue Dress was, like, really formative for me. I have a character in my second novel named after Daphne Monet. Um, but the day before I started this job, back in June, um, my boss, like my new boss, runs into Walter at the Miami airport. And they hadn't met before, but I'd spoken on the phone. What were they doing in Miami? There was like a black entertainment conference. Oh, okay. Um, and so they were both there for the same conference. She was presenting for Claus because she was the showrunner for Claus. And um, he was there for Snowfall. And so she like ran into him at the airport and introduced herself. And he asked like who she ended up hiring for the job. And she said, Steph Cha. And he acted very impressed. <laughs> And this was on a Sunday night and I started on Monday morning. The perfect timing. And I went in Monday morning and she just like in front of like all my new coworkers who don't know me from like anyone else, 
she tells the story and I was just like, I could not have planted a better <laughs> thing in the universe than to have my new boss run into Walter Mosley at the airport and have be. him like sing my praises. Well, but you know, it's like you didn't go out. I, I, cause I, uh, I feel like this is the way it more often happens. Like something has to, or it's the better way to get into a room as a TV writer than to try to schlep around and take a million meetings and like knock on the door. Like, you know, hopefully somebody pulls you in because of on the merits of the work that you've done in the genre. It was a perfect fit. It is the easier way. I will say that path is probably much easier for genre writers um, than for literary writers, for example, because I mean, she wanted a crime novelist for probably like plotting reasons, actually, probably for things that I'm not actually that good at. Um, <laughs> but I'm no, but I'm, 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 uh, I'm enjoying the room and I'm fitting in really nicely. But, um, yeah, I think that was, that felt like a really nice, easy way in. Um, I had made a deal with myself pretty early on that I wasn't going to try to like hustle my way into TV because it just seemed really hard. Like people really want it and they put a lot of hours into it. And I was working so much on my novels that I knew I didn't have time for like a separate hustle and starting from the bottom. And so I thought, you know, if, if, if something happens, it happens, but I'm not going to like go nuts, like trying to generate a new career. Um, but I was, I also had a vague awareness that as a crime novelist, like things might come up, like this wasn't the first TV job I'd interviewed for. I'd interviewed for a couple others that just happened kind of serendipitously. And I didn't get the, I didn't get the jobs because I didn't have any screenwriting experience. So like, fair enough. Um, and this, but this one worked out. So I had been thinking after I finished this novel, like maybe I would write a pilot, but I hadn't committed to that. And the only reason I was even thinking about that was because there was, I had this summer between when I finished edits on the book and when the book came out. And I just kind of knew that I wasn't going to get a strong start on a novel in that time. I was so exhausted from the last one. It's just, it took a lot out of me. Like the first three books I wrote really back to back. And part of that is um, my old publisher Minotaur had me on a book a year schedule. So you really have to be delivering very quickly but also I knew how to write those books. Um, and it didn't, it didn't require like learning the craft all over again, um, to write a second or a third Juniper song novel. Um, so I was able to do that. And so by the time the second and third, by, by the time each of the books came out, I had the next one kind of really in progress. Um, but this time I got nothing. Well, I, I feel like that, process of writing those juniper songbooks is great training yeah even if you deviate oh just... totally i don't think i w- could have written this book if i hadn't written those first and this one took you five years it took me i'd say four and a half four and a half yeah. versus a book a year yeah i mean i'd say the song novels i spent a year and a half on the first draft of the first novel but that was not working on it every day that's when i was still in school and then I spent some more time revising, probably another year. But like, again, it wasn't like I was writing full time. And then the second and third books took between a year, year and a half each. Do you outline? I did not for the first two books. And then the third book I did kind of out of necessity because I sold the book on an outline. But my natural mode was not to outline. And then for this book, I didn't, I didn't start out with any kind of outline. And that, and 
then it ended up being kind of a mess for a long time. And when I finally sat down and told myself, like, you need to, like, figure out the structure, like, let's, like, outline this thing, um, I actually outlined a lot of it pretty quickly, um, and it was infinitely easier to write after that. Really? Yeah. Like, it, I it... could not believe, I, I, when I when I sat down and wrote the outline, um, you know, and I, and I only outlined the last, I think, two-thirds um, after I had spent all this time agonizing over the first third. And um, I feel like the outline for that came together, like, super fast. I want to say, like, days fast. Um, and it was just so much easier. I mean, could I have done that if I hadn't spent all this time building the first third? Like, I don't know. I think I think maybe not. But I do know that whatever I tackle next, I actually am going to try to outline it first. Well, I think the tentpole thing. Yeah. Like, you don't necessarily have to have every little plot point and detail you know, in place, but it does help to kind of get the basic architecture. Yeah. And to know where you're going. Yeah. And I think too, like having some idea of how things are going to end is maybe the most helpful thing. I I did know how it was going to end from the beginning. Yeah. I did know how it was going to end. So why don't you give listeners who are new to your work or new to this book, um, some of the origin story in terms of what got you interested in writing this, not only like the historical events that, um, inspired it, and informed it, but also the desire that you had, I would imagine, to depart from the more um, genre-y, if that's a way to describe it, like the Juniper Songbooks, and to maybe approach crime fiction from a different angle. Yeah, my third book, I was thinking a lot about... My third book had to do with... um, Actually, the two broad themes of it were pregnancy surrogacy, and uh, the Armenian genocide. <laughs> so that that's what that book was about. But it was really about ideas of legacy and the way that he- history seeps into the current generation. You know, I have um, I have um, Armenian American friends who I got into a long conversation with about um, Turkey's continual denial of the genocide, and it really. Um, resonated with me because you know I'm Korean American and Koreans have this ongoing intense resentment of the Japanese and I feel it too because and it's not just because they occupied Korea and raped Korean women it's because today they continue to kind of deny it um and so I, I totally understood how you could hold on to resentment uh, um, about things that happen to people who just share some of your genes like a hundred years ago. And that idea was interesting to me. So I was thinking about that as I wrote that book. And then, um, and then I heard a radio interview on KPCC um, with uh, Dr. Brenda Stevenson, who's a professor at UCLA, talking about the murder of Latasha Harlins. Latasha was a 15-year-old black girl who lived in South Central, and she was shot in the back of the head by a Korean shopkeeper who um, accused her of shoplifting orange juice. It turned into an altercation, and as Latasha was leaving, she shot her in the back of the head. Um, And she was convicted of voluntary manslaughter, but the judge felt sorry for her and gave her no jail time. And it was this massive injustice that happened um the actual shooting happened two weeks after 
the Rodney King beating. And then the sentencing happened before the Rodney King verdict. Um, and so it was considered a, an inciting factor in the 92 uprising and also one of the reasons that Korean businesses were targeted. It's not the only reason. There was already resentment there between the Korean Korean people who owned a lot of the businesses in South Central and the residents of South Central who were largely black. And um, there were a lot of cultural misunderstandings um, and also just, and, and, and there was a lot of crime like that went in both directions. Um, you know, there were these Korean shopkeepers who were, who were, who like dropped into the U.S. with no knowledge of U.S. racial politics, um, bought businesses in a neighborhood that white entrepreneurs didn't want to work in um, and had no knowledge of anything except that like people were stealing from them or whatever. And, um, and so that created a lot of tension. And so there was a lot of tension there. And then it blew up after, after Latasha's murder. No, I didn't even remember until when I was reading your book, I was like, I don't remember that. I mean, I certainly don't remember it. I was five, but, but I do. I remember Rodney King. Yeah. Like that got it like, you know, cause I was thinking too, like 1992, I was still living in the Midwest. I was in high school. Um, so I remember the news of the riots, you know, I have like kind of a abstract memory of it, but I was so far removed from it geographically. And I was what, 16 years old. I had other yeah. things going on, but I don't remember the, the Tasha Harlan's, uh, killing or, you know, shooting. Yeah. yeah. No, that, that, um, that murder was part of the same story. But like, again, like I didn't, I didn't have any awareness of, of it at the time. And until I heard this story, like I hadn't heard, I, I'm not sure that I'd heard the name Latasha Harlins. I mean, I knew about black Korean tensions in LA. Um, but when I heard this, you know, even if I'd heard it before, it felt like I was hearing it for the first time. And I think I was. Um, and I don't know, I just like f had a really strong reaction to it and all, and, and feeling like hearing about Sunja Du. I had this very like personal reaction too. There's something about being part of a tight knit community like the Korean American community, or I think like I think like Black community is also like this, where like you hear about like a Korean person committing a terrible crime or even doing something like really embarrassing, and um, there's a feeling that like it somehow reflects on you. And so I was feeling all these things, like I was feeling anger, but I was also feeling shame um, and guilt. And it was interesting because, you know, I didn't, I don't know this person. I'd like just heard about this first person for the first time. Um, I, and, but I knew that we came from, you know, a similar community. Um, and I just felt connected to this whole ordeal in a way that felt very personal. And I wanted to explore that. Um, so did you know that it was a book right then? I mean, how quickly did you go from listening to that KPCC interview to sitting down and putting pen to paper? I think I knew it was a book right then. Um, I didn't, I think I was still working on dead soon enough, maybe, um, which was your third, my third book. book. And so I didn't start work on it right away. And when I started working on it, I initially wrote a short story version for a story collection called Asian Pulp. And I wrote the short story, um, which is basically just about a Korean-American young woman finding out that her mother was basically like Sinja Du. Um, 
And I sent it to my agent and I was like, do you think this could be a novel? And he was like, yeah, I think this could be a novel. Um, and so I started working on it from there. Um, but yeah, I, I think I had such a strong reaction to this story and I knew how complex it was that I thought I could, I, I wanted to write a book about it. Um, I think also being Korean American and, and writing about Korean American Los Angeles, which is a topic that is really underexplored in fiction. Um, I knew that I was going to reckon with the early 90s at some point um, because I think it's a really rich topic. And um, Aside from Rodney King and Latasha Harland? Yeah. Aside from those two incidences or incidents, um, like, is there a broader context you're talking about when you talk about the early 90s and Korean Americans in Los Angeles? I am talking about Rodney King and Latasha Harlins, but also like the context of uh, of those stories and just the, the just um, Koreans in in L.A. in South Central, the the racial tensions that brewed um, in in the neighborhoods where like blacks and Koreans clashed. Um I was just interested in that whole time period because it's one of the only times that Korean Americans have been um, at the forefront of like American racial politics. Um, you don't really hear about, you only hear about Asians in like specific contexts when we're talking about race in America. When we talk about affirmative action, you talk about Asians. Um, and otherwise, like not that much, you know, um, I, I guess there's some broader stuff like the idea of the perpetual foreigner. But when you think about like current events or like the way that people talk about race in the media, um, usually it's, it codes more black and white. Um, nowadays it's, nowadays there, it's a little more complex than that because, um, you know, there, I think especially with like, with like all the horrors at the border, um, you know, I, I think it's hard to talk about that in black and white, but Asians are kind of the quiet minority that like don't get that much play in the media. Yeah. And I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I was thinking as you were talking about my own personal recollection of Rodney King and the LA riots. And if there are two media images that stand out in my mind, one is that video of the police beating Rodney King, mm -hmm. which got played a million times. And then the other image is the white guy getting pulled from his truck. Oh, yeah. In Reginald South Denny. Yeah, Reginald Denny and getting beaten. Yeah. Those are the two. Two beatings. Yep. One white on black and the other black on white. The other big one of the other big images, though, from that time period it was um, Korean men on rooftops with guns. Right. Um. And that was, and that was kind of how the media played it. And it was interesting because that, um, Koreans in LA in 1992, in the six days of rioting, um, they were played as in opposition to blacks and, um, you know, in opposition to like, to, to the rioting, like in a way that coded white. Right. Like here are these like Korean men with guns protecting their property. Look how like racist they are or look how, you know, look how like they're protecting their they're standing their ground, you know, depending on how you look at it. But then um, but then the police like ignored Koreatown and let Koreatown burn, let Korean businesses burn. And so and meanwhile, they were like, not West. that, not that like, far from here. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I live um, I live really close to the California market, um, which is where some of the most famous images were from with like the Korean men on the rooftops. Um, but yeah, when it came to the way that the LAPD treat, treated Koreans, it was it was like they coded non-white because LAPD was out west protecting Beverly Hills or whatever. Um, and so it, Koreans fell in this interesting middle ground. Um, and I think this is kind of the story of like Asian Americans in America, uh, um, Asians in America, which is that depending on who's talking and who's framing it and like who benefits, um, Asians can be put in the people of color bucket or the white people bucket. Um, and it's, it's fluid. And I, I, th- I thought that the early nineties was an interesting case study in this, um, because both were happening at the same time and because they were so prominent, you know, I think, um, I, I, I don't know. I haven't read a lot of books that deal with racial tensions that are not black and white or that involve white people in some way. Um, and so I wanted to write about the black and Korean racial tensions and about and about a cast of characters that like is predominantly not white. And I have actually thought that if that time period, if stories from that time period involved more white people, there would be more stories about that period published because there was a lot of stuff going on that was really interesting. Um, but most of it happened to not involve white people. Mm. And, you know, the the novel explores, among other things, the ways in which, um, and you kind of touched on this earlier when you were talking about, uh, you know, the history between Japan and Korea and how historical events, either those that took place decades ago or those that are, you know, a year or five years old um, and that you're not that far removed from, you know, you may think they don't touch you. Um, you may think that you're separate from them because they didn't directly involve you. But when your family's involved, uh, when your community's involved, it does find its way into your life. It's kind of, you're kind of inextricable from it. Yeah. And I think that, I don't know, it's a deeper aspect of crime and, uh, social injustice in this country that you don't often see unpacked you know, people want simpler answers. And, you know, this book, it just helped me understand how, you know, things that might, when you just like hear them on the news for five seconds might seem crazy. Like, oh my God. Yeah, exactly. And then you start to really dig in and unpack it and get into the complexity of it and the different, um, you know, generational layers and motivations and just the humanness of it. So you you are to be commended for doing that work because that's slow work. Yeah, and it was, and I wanted to write a story about how um, these events that can become national events are also personal to somebody, and those somebodies like often don't have a choice in the matter, and um, and so I wanted to write a book that took these two limited points of view. I write um, half of it from the point of view of a forty-one-year-old black man, and half of it from the point of view of a twenty-seven-year-old. Korean woman, Korean American woman. Um, and both of them for different reasons are just kind of like blah, 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 la la like don't want to like hear anything that's like outside of their house. Um, because, uh, I th- like grace, the Korean protagonist, she's just, 
she's busy. She lives at home. She works with her family. She's not that plugged in to what's going on outside of a very her very narrow her very small bubble. And, and, and you know, I know so many people like that. Um, many of them Korean American, um, and like she was, she's just like so recognizable to me. Um, and Sean is somebody who he's just like exhausted by everything that's already happened, um, and just wants to like live his life. And you know, neither of them get to like make that choice of just like continuing oblivious to the world around them because the world around them intrudes. Um, and you know, and, and, and it intrudes in the shape of a crime, um, a shooting. And I think that's, that, that's how it works, right? Like nobody asks for this thing that comes into their lives and like shakes everything up. Um, but suddenly they're, they're at the forefront of this political story, like this very highly, uh, this very heavy politicized story and they have to deal with it. Coming from writing the crime novels, you know, and I only realized this when I was almost done with the book, but I have one character in it who's a white dude, like, detective, and I have one character in it who's, like, this white dude journalist. And um, I realized that both of those characters would be point-of-view characters in, like, an inverted version of this book, um, where they are leading the investigation um, in some way or another. Um, and even in my it, PI novels, you know, Grace or Sean would have just been people that get talked to for a scene. You know, they'd add color um, and they'd tell their stories and then you move on to like the next person. But like you said, like, you know, you hear about these people in the news for like a few minutes, but they have to live with the stories for their whole lives, the rest of their lives. Um, and so I wanted to um, really stay with them and get into what that means, like the discomfort of it, um, the deeply personal nature of this violence. What about writing about or from the point of view of a 41 year old black man and trying to get inside? I mean, you know, it's one thing to write about a 27 year old Korean American woman. I yeah. Think. Cause I've been a 27 year old <laughs> Korean American woman. Right. Been there, done that. But like when you're writing about the African American, um, experience in Los Angeles, you're obviously operating outside of your personal context. And, you know, I, I'm a huge believer in creative, um, license as an author it's great to explore other people gender culture but it's also a big responsibility oh yeah like how did Huge. you how did you tackle that and like what was that process like you know when i was starting to write this book so the short story version of it was all from was all from like the korean american uh daughter's perspective um and so when i was starting to write this book uh i was thinking who's going to tell the story like, how am I going to structure it? What are the rules going to be? And I very quickly realized that I couldn't tell it all from one point of view. I thought that if I told it only from the Korean-American point of view, it would end up not just seeming but being, like, too sympathetic to the, the Korean family. Um, because something about inhabiting... The lives of these characters, uh, the lives of any set of characters for a long period of time, you end up feeling for them and siding with them, even if it's just in this structural way. And I didn't want that. Um, and I wanted to write a balanced, well rounded story that looked at this one event from as many angles as possible, and certainly um, from the sides of both the family 
of the victim and the family of the perpetrator. And so I knew I had to do it. And when I realized I knew I had to do it, um, I got very scared. (laughs) I was going to say, you also just gave yourself a a hell of a lot more work. Yeah, I got, I got very scared and I, but I also feel like I recognized the level of care and that would have to go into it. So I never took it lightly. I think when people get into trouble is when they're like creative license is everything I can. I'm a, I'm a. I'm a novelist. Like I can write whatever I want. You know, I've read books where black people come across as if they're like, as if they like don't exist in the real world, you know, like I, I, yeah, I just like read books where I'm like, this author did not write this to be read by black people. They wrote it to be read by white people. And, um, you know, you can do that when you're writing sci-fi and you're writing about aliens. But, um, I, didn't want to write a book where I'd be like embarrassed if like black people read it. Um, and yeah. And I knew that there was a lot of care that I needed to take. Um, what about research? To go about that. And research, certainly research. I mean, I started by, um, I actually started by talking to one friend who heard me read my short story at a reading. My friend, Peter Woods, who's, um, one of the publishers um, for Writ Large Press. Um, he's local. Um, he's a black dude, grew up in grew up in LA. And he actually came up to me after the reading because he had gone to high school with Latasha. They weren't the same year, but like they went to the same high school. Like he was very familiar with like her story and also just growing up black in the eighties and nineties, like, you know, similar age. Um, and so he came up to me after the reading and told me that and said like, and he actually like volunteered to help me out. Um, so I bought him a lot of drinks over the course of a couple of years. What's this going to lead to? <laughs> <laughs> It'll be like, you know, 10 years from now, you're like, I can't believe I'm the president of Paramount Studios because <laughs> I bought Peter some drinks. <laughs> no, and he's awesome. Like, and he, and he, I just, he told me lots of stories about growing up and, um, and that it's like the opening that takes place in Westwood. I hadn't heard of that. There was like this mini riot that broke out in Westwood on the night of the new Jack city premiere. He was there. Um, as he was like a teenager and he was like, he was like trying to see the movie. And so he told me the story and like, I found like a news article about it, but it was like, Oh, what the fuck? Like I had never heard about this and I never would have, if I hadn't talked to him, but yeah, I talked to him about like what it was like growing up. I mean, but, you know, most of the book does not take place in the early 90s. I just needed that for background. I did a lot of reading about, like, Black L.A., um, you know, kind of the Great Migration, although um, there's less, re- there's less like, reading material available about, um, about, like, the Black population of L.A. between the 90s and now. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I'm also, I, I don't know if I read about this, but, you know, it, there's just... It's like very obvious and maybe I have read about it. I've certainly talked about it. There's been like this mass exodus of black people from at least central Los Angeles since the early nineties. And, um, and I wanted to write about that too. I thought it was interesting to write about, uh, this incident that happened in the middle of the city and then write about people who live in the suburbs of the exurbs. So Grace's family lives in the San Fernando Valley, which by the way is where Sinjadu lives. Um, and that was like really creepy to me because that's where I grew up. 
and I realized like we probably know some people in common, you know, I'm, um, did you make just, that, did you make that creative choice before you knew that? No. Oh, okay. So you knew it going in. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. I knew going in. And I think that's part of what got me thinking. The fact that she was there, like kind of living among like my people. Um, you know, I'm sure like we know people in common through church or whatever, like, and that's just weird to me. It means that it's not causing any waves, certainly. Um, but yeah, so I wanted to write about a family in Korean, in the Korean part of the Valley. And, um, and then I landed on Palmdale, um, for Sean's family. Palmdale Lancaster, um, has a large black population and they also, um, and it's also like an area where the income levels are like really compressed. So like everybody makes a similar amount of money. So it's, so large parts of it are very integrated, but, um, but the white population, um, seems kind of like, it's the kind of thing where like, if you go on like message boards on Palmdale, it's like, oh, you can't like, like don't live in like this part of town. Um, and it's just like white people talking about black neighborhoods. Um, but there's, there's some tension between the white and black populations there. Although there are also, although I've also talked to people who live there who say like, you know, I live on a block where like every kind of person lives and like, you know, friend who went to high school there, um, said it was like pretty well integrated and like in a, in a way that was like really wholesome. Um, so I found that area of interest. And so once I landed on Palmdale, um, I spent some time in Palmdale, you know, I kind of just walked around. Um, I actually did a police ride along because you're allowed to just like do that. Like they have to, you can apply and they'll take you. And I don't know, I felt kind of funny about it because it was, it was going around with a police officer and I'm like writing a book that deals with police violence. But, um, it was an interesting way to kind of drive around the city and like around Palmdale. Yeah. Yeah. So I rode along for like a shift, um, and just kind of very quickly, like see different neighborhood, different pockets of Palmdale and like see how like real people lived outside of like mall ring road. What about, uh, anything interesting happened? Did you have to like go on a high speed chase or anything? No, nothing like that. Um, but there was certainly like, it, it was, it was a lot of just like stopping and talking to people. Um, I mean, there was like one incident where like he, the police officer who's like a white boy from Santa Clarita, like he's, he's very, he was very like nice and young. Um, and was very gentlemanly to me, but he stopped and talked to, um, like a black teenager who was like walking on the street with a backpack. And it was clear that like, he was just kind of like, I don't know if this like kid belongs here. And that was kind of a moment where I was like, Oh, if I can see how, like, if this is what you're doing every day, that like how shit can happen. Um, but yeah, nothing like intense happened. Like he, he went out to various calls. It was mostly like they, they probably can't do too much intense stuff with a ride along person. In the no, car. no, I don't think yeah. so. Um, but yeah, we went into like little areas um, that I wouldn't have seen on my own, like residential areas. And did like, it wind up in the book? Um, only kind of background stuff. Like I felt like I was. I, I tried to get the feel of Palmdale into it, and that's really all that I needed. 
um, for that because a lot of the action doesn't actually happen in Palmdale and one, and the stuff that happens there, a lot of it is at people's homes. Oh, I also went to like some open houses and just like walked around empty houses in Palmdale. Oh, really? <laughs> just out of curiosity. Yeah. And just to see like, you know, what kinds of places are these? Like, you know, um, like it, it, it was, it, it was, and also like, who doesn't like going to open houses? Right. But, right. But yeah, just a lot of like driving around and trying to kind of get a feel for what it lived in the what it was like to live in the place. Um, and yeah, talking to a couple people who live there. Um, what, another interesting thing about Palmdale is that it's largely a commuter a commuter city. Um, it's seventy miles from L.A., uh, but people live there and work in L.A. That's like a pretty common thing, and. They're not coming to L.A. for, like, super high-paying jobs, you know? And so I thought the idea of this, like, working-class community where people are, like, driving 70 miles each way to go to jobs that pay, you know, maybe a little more than minimum wage, um, there's something kind of wild about that. And I also thought, like, oh, there's kind of, like... For Sean, at least, like my main character, I was felt like, oh, there's like a dignity to that, too. Um, and so I wanted to write about um, these people who are kind of making this long drive back and forth. Just And that's part of just like what they're paying to have a steady life. But is there, there's not a train. There is a train. Um, and some people take that. Uh, but I think a lot of people commute. Yeah, that's a long commute. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so you have talked about, you know, your way into this book with this radio interview and, you know, we've gotten deeper into like the process and how you started outlining after like a third of the way through, but it doesn't sound like you had explicit intent to write a book that departed from your first three books. Like, did you, did I miss that? Like, was that part of the formula for you? Did you say, like, I want to just try something different or I want to like approach crime, um, you know, from a wider angle or something like that? Did, did that come into play at the beginning or is it something that you sort of dawned on you as you were in the thick of it? I knew when I was starting the project that I was going to be different, um, just because I knew the structure would be different and I knew the voice would be different. And, uh, once the structure and voice are different, what it's like a completely different project that I also don't know how to do. So, um, so I knew going in that it was going to take some learning and reconfiguring. Um, and I knew that it would be a different angle on crime, um, because I went in and I said, this is not going to be a mystery. Like it's going to be a more, um, you know, kind of character driven exploration of these families. Um, but it wasn't that I set out to do something different necessarily. It was just that this story came to me um, and I knew that to write it, I would have to engage in a different way. Like it didn't make sense as a PI novel, certainly. What about the rules? You, you talked a little bit earlier about how, you know, you knew that you would have to figure out the rules for how the the plot would work. Is this something you do for all your books? And like, what do you like? Am I over? Um, Am I overestimating what that means? Like, it, no, no, you're not at all. Um, I, I felt like coming from writing PI novels, it would be helpful for me to figure out the rules of this book. Otherwise, I didn't know how I was going to shape it. Um, and um, you know, so for the first, for the first while, I 
before I landed on two point of view characters, it was kind of a mess. Like I had written from like various points of view. I had, I don't know, at some point I had like a newspaper article in there, st- shit like that. At one point, Sean was a writer. He was working on a book and my agent was like, no, <laughs> like he was like, he's like, nobody wants to read about a writer character. Like only writers want to write that. <laughs> Thank you, agent, for saving me. <laughs> but it's not even true. I mean, I've read, I mean. It, no, it's it's true to an extent. There are great books about writers, but he says writers are over-inclined to write them. Um, and it's true. Like, it didn't make sense to have him as a writer, but it gave me an opportunity to, like, lay in, like, this book he was working on or the story he was working on. It was, it was a mess. It was like a garbagey mess. And, uh, and so it was only when I kind of corralled it that it started taking shape. So once I... So it took a while to get it down to... Sean and Grace. I mean, I knew it. I knew they they were always in it. I knew that those two characters were going to be important. But f- to decide that okay, it's going to be alternating POV. It's going to have like it's going to start in the early '90s, but it's mostly going to be contemporary. Um, even like putting the dates on it, like everything ended up being very structured. Um, and I'm very, very strict about the POVs too. Like I don't deviate. Um, that's actually a pet peeve of mine. What do you mean you don't deviate? Oh, when when uh, when there's any like breakage in POV, like I, 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 there were parts where like, look, I think um, one of the challenges of writing this book is that the POVs were so limited that you actually can't get in a lot of the stuff that you spend all this time researching, because like you can't have a character suddenly in his 41st year of life like start pontificating about the nature of Palmdale or the nature of, you know. Like, you can, like, get away with a little bit of that when, like, that character would be thinking it. But, like, otherwise, you're just, like, in his head. Um, and, you know, and e- even for even for Grace, like, I, I, there were points where um, where my agent or editor would say, like, this sounds more like you than Grace. Like, she wouldn't really think this. Like, and so I was, I was kind of tight about that stuff. Um, yeah, so once I figured them out, like, that became easier. Although... Again, like Grace's POV came together a lot faster than Sean's, um, and it's because I have been that I have been an ignorant ass Korean American girl, you know, and um, and so uh, I, actually, like that first third, writing that first third of the book took I think two and a half years. Wow! And the rest of it came together relatively quickly. Um, and but yeah just figuring out like how this book was going to work um took a long time you know i think also for a while even after i figured out the points of view and the way that the structure was going to work it took it took a few drafts to get sean's world to feel as real and textured as grace's because grace's world just kind of i don't know like came out it's like I, i know these families like this is easy. Um, Sean's family took a lot more, like, actual just, like, labor. Like, um, just a lot of, like, detailed brushwork. Like, making sure that I got things to feel um, textured in a way that was, like... Yeah, it wasn't, like... I, I never had, like, a breakthrough where I was, like, oh, yeah, now, like... Now, like... It all clicked. Yeah, yeah. It was... It was actually just like kind of getting to know them step by step, like populating his world, really like digging into the dynamics of his relationship. And it got better and better with like each draft of that first third. Um, 
and only when I was only when I felt like they were even um, did I continue writing. And then, and, and then things happen. More and quickly. then it was yeah. And then it was like I'd spent two and a half years getting to know this family. And I knew them as well as I knew the Korean family and I could write about them. You that, know? Make, that makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense that it would take some time. Yeah. You're not going to just get to know a family, you know, in a month. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what about the, the, you know, the drafting process? How many drafts does this book go through? And was it different from previous books? Oh, it went through a lot more drafts. Um, my previous books, I barely threw anything away. Like, because cause I didn't have to. It was all first person, Juniper Song's point of view. Um, and I knew her voice from pretty much the beginning. And it was, and the stories were linear other than the first book, which has some flashbacks. So I didn't really have to cut that much. And I'm, I'm generally a lean writer. So even this book, the last two thirds, I didn't change that much. Um, they're fairly close to the way they were first drafted. I mean, I'd say like the first draft would have been like, let's say 75% to 80% there. And I wasn't really cutting like massive chunks. Um, but the first third, um, I was cutting all the time. Um, I had to do so much cleanup work and so much rebuilding even, and, and, and also like just structure, just structurally, like until like page 80 or so, like it's kind of, there's a lot of setup involved. And so I had to, even at the end, I had to go back and like tighten up those first 80 pages so they weren't boring, you know? So those first 80 were like the most challenging. Um, but yeah, that prob so the first third probably went through, I don't know, like 10 drafts, like at least. Uh, and then the, and that, but once I had the like first full draft written, probably only like three or four more. I feel like it builds in, um, I mean, like you say, you're a lean writer. There's like a, a cl- like a clarity and uh, cleanness to your pro style. I mean, that is a compliment. Like it goes yeah, yeah. down, it goes down easy. It's hard work, yeah. but I feel no, like I appreciate that. It's, it's, it's a, uh, yeah, it's, I, I, I write in a way that is uh, very easy to read, but I'm very careful. Yeah. But the, I, I was building to say that I feel like as the book builds to its uh, crescendo, there's a lot of lyricism there too. Like it sort of ramps up. I don't know if you felt that or were intending that as you worked on it, but I definitely felt it. Yeah, no, I think so. Um, I, I mean, I think like the, the lyricism kind of swells with the emotionality of it, you know? And I felt like the emotions of this book get really intense in this, in the middle and then continue at like a high intensity level until the end. Um, yeah. And, and, and again, part of that is like point of view, like when my characters are feeling things intensely, like they see things in a way that is more like contemplative and more like, and more stressed out. And, uh, and, and I don't know, everything is every, everybody is just kind of like put through a ringer. Um, and I thought it made more, and I think like that is reflected in the pro style. Hmm. So let's talk about getting it published. Did you have a book deal when you wrote it? Um, I sold it two years ago, not quite. So I sold it in twenty uh, in December of twenty seventeen um, on a partial. So I think I had written the first two thirds, sixty thousand words. Okay, and, um, the, and uh, so you you know you have what like the first two thirds done. You sell it. Um, 
And then at what point do you start to feel like maybe you, um, really had it by the tail? Cause this book's gotten an excellent critical reception. It's like starred reviews in every place you can get a starred review. Yeah. It's been, that's been kind of wild. Did you, <laughs> I got one starred review between my first three books. <laughs> okay. But this one has, you know, sometimes it comes together. I guess the question is, did you have a sense that it was coming together in a way that might resonate with readers or critics before you started to get these reviews coming in? You know, when I first started writing this book, I knew that if I could nail it, that it would hit like with, at least with like some readers, I knew it would be resonant. Um, because I don't know, it, 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 it's, it, it, and this is not to detract from my hard work, but I do think that one of the reasons it's gotten so much attention is because of the subject matter. You know, there's, and, and I work as a reviewer and I also edit for LA Review of Books and I'm aware of like the way that things pitch and like what stories are like, kind of like, catch on. Um, and I think like I'm a writer of color and I am writing a book that deals with like American racial tension in a very like culturally relevant topical way but a unique way too like you yeah, said earlier. I, I think and, and i think it's unique unique but i kind of and also i was aware of the fact that there haven't really been a lot of mainstream novels that deal with this particular tension that really had a large impact on a ton of people in one of the biggest american cities and so when i was writing it or even like coming up with the concept i thought this book feels overdue uh, and so I had some awareness that like, if I got it right, I knew that there was a chance if I didn't get it right, like nothing would happen. But I thought that if I got it right, it could really land. Um, because it's something that I would have wanted to read and I read a lot. Um, you know, and I think, and I think like the critical reception, like people like the book because I think it's a good book, but I think like it takes a lot for somebody to even like open the book. Right. So I knew that. I had to be like halfway there with the, with the, with the pitch, you know? Um, and I think, and, th and I think I got there and I think once people opened the book, they were like, Oh, this is also like well-written or whatever. But you know, you don't necessarily always even get there. Well, but you have this really sensational historical event that gives the book a, a, a certain framework and gives the average reader a way in. Everybody mm -hmm. knows about Los Angeles in 1992, at yeah. least on some level. But I think the overwhelming majority, including people who grew up here, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, whether by age or um, geography, because, you know, you grew up in Encino, the riots are close, but they're not that close. Mm -hmm. They're not like right at, at your door. You know, people who don't have a lay of the land for Los Angeles, like when you live in Encino, what's happening in South Central doesn't necessarily touch right. you, you know, or if you're living in Venice, you know, what's happening in uh, Koreatown is pretty far removed. You know, they're like almost like their own little cities in a certain yeah, way. Yeah, totally. Um, so I think there's something about the book offering people a way in and telling like a deeply rooted and by deeply rooted, I mean, deeply rooted in these events, you know, from a historical perspective mm -hmm. that kind of uncovers the, the mystery of it because everybody has this sort of like glossy media headline version of it in their brains. That's mm -hmm. how I experienced it anyway. 
So I think it's like nice to be like, oh, like it's kind of educating you on the dynamics that were at play and humanizing it. Yeah. And I'm always interested in the like on the ground version of any of these major news stories. I always find that fascinating. Like how is, how is this person's kids like dealing with this? You know, I, I, I don't, I remember reading like when the cage, I, I know when the cage bird sings and there was like a part about Maya Angelou visiting like a white dentist who like, refused to put his hand in like a black person's mouth and the dentist was named and i got so curious i was like i wonder if this dentist like has like descendants around who like know about this story and i was like googling and i couldn't find anything but i'm always interested in these you know like by the way steph's next book is called the racist dentist (laughs) forthcoming in 2021 yeah it's just like all these people are dealing with so much shit and yeah the news moves on and they don't well yeah and it's like i think a lot about media literacy especially in the times that we live in with the media environment so fractalized and so maximal and especially around news and you know uh, politics and current you know major current events and geopolitics it's like we have really got to educate people and our children mm-hmm. on how to be li- media literate in this environment. And oh, then yeah. you're going to get into deep fakes, which is coming where people are going to be able to make like very, um, like kind of like scarily accurate yeah, video. Of, oh, yeah. God. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. well, how are you going to possibly navigate that terrain? Um, I don't know how it's going to work, but I feel like you got to be on guard and people have to realize that, you know, whatever we're seeing on the nightly news or on our computer screens is like a fraction of yeah. the story. It's truly frightening. If it's the story at all. <laughs> and when, and when, uh, and when media consumption consumption is that fractalized, you are really free to believe what you want to believe. And it's so easy to convince yourself that the source that you want to be true is true. Well, yeah. And, uh, and it's like, I was just talking to um, family members about this, you know, because I feel like extended family members who are pretty siloed and, you know, just talking to like sibling, parent. It's like, how do we deal with this? Like, how do you deal with a family member who is living inside of a, uh, like a toxic, what I would, I guess what I would consider a highly toxic media silo, if that's what we're going to call it. Um, And then... I think when you, we were talking earlier about, um, you know, the empathy part of it, like having to really dig in and do the research and get to know this African-American family in order to write that POV and just spending the time to slowly work through this material and these events in an effort to render it in fiction with a deeper level of understanding. Mm-hmm. It is hard when people like you talked about the, you know, being like an, I think you said ignorant ass Korean American girl, like like having that experience of life where you're sort of in your, you're in your lane and you're living your life and it feels full and busy. And, um, I don't know. I, I, I'm this way too. I think most of us are, we all kind of spend time in our lanes and then you get busy. It's really hard to, it takes effort rather to like look around and, and to change and to consider, 
the consider deeply the experiences of other people mm-hmm. and how things might impact them and how they might feel like that active imagination and a willingness to change with the times a willingness to shift with shifting cultural norms as people um speak up and the um like injustices become defined mm-hmm. and shared you know and navigating all that i just think about how resistant people can be to doing that work because it is uncomfortable. And then I think about your book, which kind of, you know, you've done a lot of the heavy lifting, but I think it brings people through that in a way that's, that's valuable. It's almost like a map for what I just kind of stumbled through trying to describe. Thank you. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. And you know, one of the, one of the other things that went into the writing of this book, um, is, uh, the Michael Brown murder and uh, and Ferguson and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, you know. But there was one. Do you remember that New York Times article that ran about Michael Brown that said he was no angel? Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, like it rings that was a bell. like a headline about this murdered teenager, um, and I had that in my head most of the time I was writing this book too. Certainly in the beginning. And, you know, that was one of the things that I wanted to tackle this idea of like the black victim having to have this like aura of innocence, you know, when all they did was like get killed. Um, but yeah, that was like a New York Times story. That was a mainstream media source that re- let current right wingers call, you know, crooked left wing media. I don't know. It's, it's know, the New York Times has had some moments over the true. past few years it that have given me pause. But that, do- but like, deep conservatives often don't trust it. Right. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, thinking about that bias and like just the storytelling element of these killings too, um, because it's important. I mean, the Amber Geiger, uh, trial and like the way that she was treated and, um, that introduced like a whole conversation about black forgiveness. Um, and I think people took issue with, how how Amber Geiger was treated, um, you know, she's like hugged by the judge, you know, because that's a story, you know, even if it's like an, an individual story, it becomes symbolic of something. Um, and I think because we only get some of the stories, they end up being, you know, the, the kind of interesting bits get drawn out of them and they become symbolic of like larger, of, of larger issues. And, you know, I was, yeah, I was really thinking about the Michael Brown of it. Um, and, and Latasha Harlins too. And thinking about how she was treated in the media, you know, I, I, when I wrote, when I wrote, uh, the Ava Matthews character, I had her be more of this like ideal black victim. Um, you know, she's this like piano player, uh, and a good student and, and, um, and it actually was true that Latasha Harlins was a good student, but you know, none of this is like relevant to what happened to her. Um, which was that she was murdered. Um, and so that's one of the things I, I draw out in the book is that like, you know, her aunt is w- willing to capitalize on this because it actually does keep her story alive. And the brother is disgusted by it because it reduces this real person to this ideal black victim. Um, but it's a, it, but it was like an interesting balance because I was like, I understand why somebody, I understand why black parents go on the news and talk about their murdered 18-year-old boys and say he was going to college. Like, I totally get it. 
Yeah, you got to make them make them real, make yeah, them human. Because like that's like because because like the media latches onto that, and you get more attention if like you know, if like your kid wasn't it wasn't somebody who'd be perceived as a thug. Um, and I think it's so fucking tragic that that is part of the bargain and part of the calculus of creating these stories and putting them out there. Um, I also think people grieve in different ways. No, and, that, that, and I don't judge anybody or begrudge anybody the way that they um, deal with the loss of a family member. Um, but it's something that just writing this book and you know, also the nature of working on a book for four and a half years that deals with violence against black children is that, like, I can't count the number of black children who have been killed in the oh. last, in the course of my writing this book. I'm thinking, like, uh, I'm, they're I'm, just like constant examples all the time. The shootings in Texas recently. Yeah. Um, you know, there's something very wrong with the way in which the police interact with the black community. Yeah. A woman in her twenties, like playing video games with her right. little nephew who I mean, witnessed that, you know, unbelievable. Yeah. And it's just this constant, I don't know. I, I started writing this book before the election and, um, and I feel like, and, and I feel like, you know, it's a very topical book in a lot of ways in this political climate, but I feel like it's always relevant to talk about, violence, um, violence in our communities, um, violence against black people. Um, it's all, it's not like that's not an American constant because it is, it's never not been around the level of media attention to that violence comes and goes and waves, but the violence itself is always there. So the last time I saw you, I think we were marching. Yeah, that's right. It was you and me and Amelia. Yeah. Right? And maybe I'm, I might be forgetting people. Yeah, no, it was, it, it it was, was the three of yeah, us, right? Yeah. Um, I have stopped asking just because I kept asking every guest that come in, that came in. There was a period of, I don't know how many shows where I was like, how is this going to end? Meaning how is this presidency and the chaos that we're living in going to end? But we are now in impeachment. It's October of 2019. Mm-hmm. Just because we were marching together, I guess, what what was it, a year, year and a half ago, maybe? Yeah, I feel like it was about a year ago. Um, where, I mean, I think back then I was hopeful that it would be over <laughs> by, by now. But where do you see this going? Do you have a sense of, of how this is going to play out? I try to be hopeful um, because I don't... I try not to be anxious about things that like haven't happened yet because I feel like it's counterproductive. <laughs> so every time... I hear that Trump is going to win again. I'm just like, he might not. So like, I don't want to like experience the second Trump presidency before I have to experience the second Trump presidency. Um, but you know, it could happen. Uh, I think, um, I don't know. I, I mean, it's a hard, it's hard to predict like what'll happen because nobody has been able to do it with like any efficacy. Um, I think putting Trump in context is useful. You know, it's not like things weren't fucked up before Trump came along. I mean, Trump came along because things were fucked up, right? So I think that um, that we as a country have a lot of, like, self-reflection to do. And I hope that people are doing it. Um, they need to read your book is what they need to do. I hope so. I, f- I feel like the only people who are going to read my book are people who agree with me. I worry about that. Well, you never know. I actually thought I actually thought with my other books that was less true. 
I thought um, my song books have gotten readers from, that run the gamut, but like this book is kind of aggressive. <laughs> well, uh, but it's like, I, you know, I think there's something savvy about, cause I feel like crime stories, maybe they've always, they've never gone out of vogue. Have they? I mean, no, pe- people love to read about crime. And people who read and dedicated crime readers will read like a crime novel a day. And so, yeah, there will be people who read my book who also read like, you know, government conspiracy thrillers that are like very like right wing and military, you know. Um, but I don't know if I could change anyone's mind. That'd be amazing. I don't I've never gotten an email that's like, you've changed my mind about this. I don't know if it's like some <laughs> I don't know if it's like some big fell swoop, but I do think that um, it can take a it can like knock a chink out of the wall. Is that, is that you know what I'm saying? Like you can like a, let a little light through and it's going to take multiple um you know it takes multiple different things i think for somebody to really change but yeah i think i believe a book can or a work of art can help the process and i think like generational shifts are work in the favor of progress although actually i find almost no one scarier than like young right-wing white men they're fucking scary and they're gonna live a long time uh, and have like a lot of children and that scares me Um, but, but, you know, I feel like young people are more progressive than, than old people, certainly. And like, I feel like every generation we go in, we inch in the right direction. You know, there are some things that are never gonna kind of go all the way. Like, I feel like abortion and capital punishment are going to be stalled forever, um, because there are, there are always going to be like 50, 50 issues, but like, I don't know. I mean, look how far we've come on marriage equality in the last 10 years, you know, and that was, that was a major, a major sea change that we've seen in our lifetimes. And that's pretty inspiring. Um, but yeah, I mean, I also think like the big, I, I live in a city, you know, so I might have like an overly sunny view of these things. Um, but you know. There's, there are reasons to be optimistic in the midst of severe despair. I'd like to hear that, <laughs> you know, um, you know, there, there is, uh, it's not all gloom and doom. And I think there is, you know, one of the more hopeful like lines of thinking that you come across here and there is that maybe this period of, um, darkness and insanity is gonna, um, wake some people up. Yeah, I think so. I have a brother who um, graduated from college this year, um, and started co- and he started college in 2015. You know, he was like, and so when the election happened, he was a sophomore, and he just he just kind of gone through his like freshman in college political awakening. And I was talking to him about like being in college during this time period, and he was like, you know, it's like very invigorating in a way. You know, I think people are inspired and like motivated to like do good in the world. Does he have a like who do who do the young people like? Do we have a candidate? I don't think my brother has uh, expressed um, total fanaticism for any one candidate. One candidate, but I don't know. Like just, from just from talking to, I don't know. I I, I would I would think I, I think we talked about Warren. That's and, good. I can. I'll, I'll t- like, I'm at the point where I'm like I'll take any of them. Yeah. Just anything's better. Um, then what yeah, was going I, on? I, I decided early on that I didn't want to, 
I'm happy to be invested in candidates. Like I like Warren. Um, Me too. But I'm also trying very hard not to dislike any of them. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think that it's like this is the part of the process where you get to figure out who you feel best about. But ultimately, whoever emerges from the process, you know, if there's an insane, insane infighting or like rigidity, like I, I guess where I get uncomfortable oftentimes in politics generally, but maybe on the left is um, I'm not comfortable with ideological like rigid ideology of any kind over the last like one percent of difference yeah, yeah. Or, or just like hey listen you know you're not going to get everything you want yeah no no i agree with that and i will vote i will vote for biden you know and i will be happy to do it right that's how i i mean i was a i supported bernie in 2016 because he was like speaking about um you know domestic economic issues that really resonated with me but in the general i happily voted for hillary yeah considering the options yeah and i guess where i get where i have a problem is when people are like well no like she's the same as trump and it's like obviously yeah, not. yeah look where we are look where we are <laughs> you fool <laughs> um so last thing i'll ask you is now that you're writing in um, tv and you're kind of on that track like what's next for you also um has there been any interest from film and television for this book because i couldn't help but imagine it on the screen. I, th I feel like it's a great Los Angeles story that could potentially translate. Yeah, I certainly hope so. There has been some interest. Um, we're actually, I'm actually talking to my agent this afternoon about an offer that came in like last week. Oh, cool. Um, so that'd be cool. For a movie? Um, like just the option? Do for you the know? option. Yeah. I actually, I like read the contract and I don't entirely understand it. So that's why we're having this phone call. But, um, but yeah, there's been interest. I think, um, I think it would work really well as like a miniseries kind of thing. That's um, I, yeah, limited. Yeah, because it feels longer than two hours, but it feels, you know, it's not like a twenty episode show. I like that format. Yeah, me like, too. You know, from I think low the, commitment. Well, that, that <laughs> and also I think it meshes best with novelistic totally instinct, like the, the the limited series, like three to six part. You get to tell a longer, more complex story. People can take it in chapters. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And you get to. I don't know. You get to really explore it, but I, I feel like it makes a lot of sense. I'm glad that there's that option. It didn't, I mean, we had mini series back in the day, but I feel like there's this new thing like happening in, in television that kind of allows for a different type of storytelling. Yeah. And a lot of TV is being made. So I feel like it's actually a good time for people to pitch projects and all that i don't know so I'm, I'm hopeful about that and if i can get paid to write on it or write a pilot or whatever that'd be excellent um but i don't know what comes next um really i'm so i'm working through i think thanksgiving or so and that's also around the end of my book tour so this next like month and a half is gonna be like a fucking clusterfuck right um there's not a single day when i'm not working or traveling well i'm glad i caught you yeah, no, and, and you're going to have a baby. Yeah. And I'm like fucking pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> so when I'm done with that run, I think I'll take a month where I just like don't do shit and just read and relax. Um, my doctor has informed me that I should be exercising and I have not been exercising. Um, but then I think probably in 2020, I'll start whatever my next big project is. I would like to have something like cooking by the time I give birth. 
because I feel like I'm going to be useless for a few months, just like not wanting to work. Um, so I'd like to get like knee deep into a project before that happens, whether that be a screen project or my next novel. I kind of hope it's my next novel. Um, I think, I think now that I haven't been working on a novel for about five months, I feel like I've had enough of a break. I didn't want to start working on my next one immediately because like I've actually been working continuously on novels since like 2008. So I felt like I needed a break from that, especially since this last one was just such a project. <laughs> what about the kind of novel you would imagine writing next? Would it be taking what you learned from this book and then expanding? Or would it be, did you want to write another PI novel, like go back to kind of like a more traditional genre detective fiction? I think I will probably write another novel that's kind of in the vein of your house will pay, just in the sense of like, an L.A. novel that involves Korean-Americans. I think I will always write L.A. novels about Korean-Americans um, because, I don't know, it's not like there are tons of other people doing it. And so I feel like I have a lot of territory to roam around in. Um, and something that is about, yeah, about Los Angeles and has that kind of, yeah, like a social crime novel. I think I would probably write another one of those. I'm. It, it probably won't have to do with the early 90s, at least not in the same way as this one. Um, and it probably will not be another book about blacks and Koreans. Like, I don't want to be the like Korean writer who's like, I'll just write about black people all the time. You know, that was, I feel like that was, um, very important to this book, but, um, I haven't figured out what the next one will be, but I do know that this, I do know your house will pay is kind of a unique one for me. Um, I feel like whatever I write next, and I've told my agent this, and I've told my editor this, I said, I feel like whatever I write next will probably not be as like easy a sell as this one, um, in that I'm not going to like go straight into like the, the, um, kind of deepest part of like the cultural or, um, in the same way. But, um, I like the idea of, uh, I like social crime novel. It reminds me of, um, Jordan Peele. Mm hmm. And the social horror. Yeah, that's right. You know, that's like, a genre. I think it's interesting to take, I think it's interesting and savvy to take these genre conventions and blend them with, uh, like social politics and exploration in that way. Um, it gives people, I think it gives people a way in. Yeah, exactly. I think it entertains, but you know, you get to do a little bit of both. It worked. I mean, when it works, it works at least for me. Um, so I'm excited about it. I congratulate you on this book. I congratulate you on your baby and I wish you well, um, you know, on the next book and you know, when your little one arrives. Thank you. Thanks for having me on again. This was fun. All right. That's Steph Cha and her new novel is called your house will pay available now from echo. It's one of the best reviewed books of the year. Your house will pay by Steph Cha. You can find her on the internet at stephcha.com and you can follow her on Twitter at Steffi Cha. That's Steph with a Y at the end, Cha. You know how to do it. Just go to Twitter. She's on book tour right now. Thanks to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music at the top of the show. If you would like to write to me and let me know how you're feeling, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. You can also uh, support the show if you're in the mood. 
patreon.com slash other PPL pod or you can uh, rate and, re- and or and slash or you can rate and review the show at iTunes. That helps. Don't forget about the Other People app. This program has its own official app. It is free. Go get the Other People with Brad Listy app wherever you get your apps. So I've been trying to do two shows a week like I used to do. I'm going to give that a go. I don't know if I'll be able to do it every week, but I'm going to try. I feel like with the show's listenership uh, growing the way that it has been over the past few months, it's worth it. And I feel a certain obligation to feed the stray cats. Coming up next, I have uh, one of uh, this year's or one of the most recent five under 30. Is that what it is? Five under 30? You know what I mean. That list of, uh, you know, writers under 30. 35. I had a great conversation with Ashley Wurzbacher. So stay tuned for that. I also have some uh, some other good ones in the pipeline. Looking at my calendar right now. Got to figure out how I'm going to get all this stuff done. But uh, much to look forward to. Be patient. Calm down. Calm <laughs> down.